In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. One of the great pleasures of producing this podcast is talking with composers whose work I've listened to over the years, and I imagine you have too. This is actually the 102nd episode of Notably Disney, and kind of coincidentally, but also a bit intentionally, I timed it so that I would be talking with composer David Newman, of 102 Dalmatians. How do you like that? I think that's just really poignant. And he's also uh, instrumental for having handled, or arranging, I should say, the 2021 score for West Side Story, which was released by 20th Century Studios. You can watch on Disney+. Plus. It's an absolutely fantastic production. Definitely a good two and a half hours worth of your time. So on this episode, I talk with David about his many contributions for Disney, including those projects. And I hope you come away with a greater appreciation for not only his work, but also the collective work that has been developed by him and his very famous family. And you'll hear all about that during our conversation. So, David, it is uh, really an honor to bring you on to the podcast. Um, You've charted a lot of different uh, roles over the years, including much Disney work. Um, And I'm really excited to have you you here and to have a conversation about your work for the company, um, some of your career highlights, and and your famous family as well. So thank you for being on here today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Glad to do it. David, so many of us um, film score connoisseurs are well aware of not only your legacy of great scores over the past four decades, but also the extraordinary musical lineage that you come from. Um, Your father, Alfred, brother Thomas, Uncle Lionel, cousin Randy, uh, among many folks. Uh, And I know that um, in learning more about your background, that your father uh, passed away when you were a teenager. And I'm curious as far as what music-related conversations that that you had with him as a a child still stand out to you. Uh, hardly uh, any. He died in 1970. Uh, I was born in 54 March. I just about turned 16. Um, uh, we were very trained music for sure. Um, we violin from seven years old, piano from 10, theory and counterpoint as children, 11, 12, pretty much college course. Uh, you know, he, he made sure that happened. But quite honestly, his he always kept Broadway uh, hours. He, he would rise very late in the day and stay up very late. So our schedules were pretty out of sync, except for maybe one or two days a week when we would all have dinner together and everything. Um, I did have a few music conversations with him. Um, we used to watch Minotti's television version of A Mall in the Night Visitors that came on in black and white in the I don't know, late 50s, maybe early 60s. He did like that. It was a, a holiday time. Uh, I do remember here and there him playing piano for me, doing violin, but it was torture as 
I wasn't very good at that point, and he was very impatient with it. Um, he didn't have a lot to do with that. I do remember him playing me the, I don't know if you know, uh, uh, Airport, which was his last. Oh, yes. He played me the Inez theme, the little major minor uh, sad theme for the wife of, um, you know, the guy that blows up the plane and asked me what I thought of it. So I, I remember that. I remember listening to the... Um, Broadway cast recording of a West Side Story with him as well, where you know, but th not all that much. We were just too young and not that interested, quite frankly. We, 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 he wanted us to have a very normal West Side of Los Angeles um, upbringing. Where, where are you from? Where, where are you calling from? Uh, currently, I'm calling you from Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, so yeah, Phoenix is you know West Coast ish, but. Uh, we were in the Palisades, which is on the west coast of Los Angeles, um, the west side, we call it. And it was all public school, and we all, it was glorious, the education system of the time. <clears throat> we were we were playing, um, we, we had, we were in an orchestra every day. The, the, the music programs, the art programs, the, it was extraordinary. And uh, we had a really well-rounded, a lot of academics too, so a lot of, Kids from our high school went to Yale and Harvard and Princeton, so there, there, there. It really wasn't the prep school kind of place. Um, so that was mainly what we did growing up. Um, you know, when after he died, it was you know as we got older, we we became more into it. Uh, you know, through through high school and then after high school, obviously, then it then it then it really kicked in. I went to USC here. I all my studies and everything were. In Los Angeles, I, I was a violin major. Uh, uh, you know, SC was a West Coast quote unquote. Uh, th there was a conservatory wing of a much larger um, academic institution. I mean, USC is a gigantic. Uh, you know, it has all kinds of wonderful you know business school and everything. But they did have a, a conservatory thing, so I, I studied there, and I graduated in '76, and then I started doing studio work, playing violin for a living for about 10 years. And I played, I'm sure you saw, I played on E.T. I played on a lot of John Williams, a lot of Jerry Goldsmith stuff, but hundreds of things, because I did it for about 10 years. I played on eight Academy Awards shows, and um, oh, there was so much work then for everyone. Uh, if you got in the group of about five, 600 musicians, um, you know, and so, and, and then I, and I was studying conducting. I got a master's in conducting. I was really interested in conducting in the 70s. Sure. And then it, and then I kind of matriculated into film composing, which took me four or five years. I sort of started thinking about it in the early 80s. And then by 85, 86, after doing a couple of what we would have called then industrial films, kind of political films and, you know, uh, documentaries or stuff, <clears throat> I was working with a, a guy, a partner. We did that um, Tim Burton short, Frank and Weenie, which is Disney, which you right. probably are going to ask about. Um, and that was really my first kind of really professional foray into composing was that. And then I, I did a few other films, and then I eventually got um, uh, this uh, DeVito movie, which really helped me, and then I was sort of off to the races. But I did. I did. End, I did for a while do a lot of Disney stuff uh, when Katzenberg was there and Chris Montan and um, uh, more early on um, than later. Um, so, yeah, and and actually one of those projects um, that that is uh, definitely a beloved one for many fans was the Epcot attraction Cranium Command, yeah. where folks would be inside the brain of a, a preteen boy. Um, and what I remember from it, both having visited there and then listening to it um, subsequently, is that the score really combines the miller militaristic elements of this buzzy being inside the boy's brain and very marching percussion, but also some like bubbly woodwinds that shows the whimsy and the, the sweetness. What, what do you remember from that project? Uh, well, I had done Brave Little Toaster, which was also Disney, because that was uh, uh, when I got hooked up at Disney. Uh, Tom Wilhite and Willard Carroll were sort of running the, well, Tom was running the studio, Thomas Wilhite. Um, before um, 
after him, it was uh, one of the Disney people before it became um, Eisner. Um, but it was fl- it was sort of floundering, you know. And and Lasseter had this project, John Lasseter, called Brave Little Toaster. And um, then I don't, some, he either got fired or left, or and Tom kept that project. And Jerry Reese, he he hired Jerry Reese, who I think was an Imagineering person, but an animator to um, to do that. And I was hired to do that because you know they had hired me for Frankenweenie, and um, and that was one of the that, that was one of the greatest experiences of my life. That that is very difficult, but um, I love I to this day I think that is a brilliant work of art. That, that movie. Uh, now they never really released it the way that we had hoped and it, it it got caught up in a regime change and it was just weird. But that was a big movie with a big dub and a big orchestra and, and uh, um, I mean it was done on the cheap but not quality wise. It was it was uh, yeah it was hand drawn but it was it was exquisite in its detail and nuance and what it was attempting, the story it was attempting to sell, and the orchestra, we went to Japan because it was way cheaper, but we used the best engineers and we, you know, it was it was a fantastic experience. So um, I'm sorry that never got released in a theater because it's a gorgeous, it was a gorgeous dub in, the, in, a, in a movie theater, but I don't think anyone ever saw it in a movie theater except us. Thankfully, it, it got a life of its own through yeah. the just releases and other other formats as well. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, for for us at the time, it was a movie. We didn't. Right. It wasn't. We certainly had no idea it was going to go straight to you know video or that they would kibosh it. Basically, they ended up doing some sequels, but um, only after I think it it did get it did get popular because it's a it's a wonderful. Anyway, Jerry then did. Um, I just something called Mike and Mickey that that was this um, thing, that, uh, and then this Robin Williams thing. Uh, yeah, at the Disney MGM Studios, back to Neverland. Yeah, and then this Cranium Command. So I'd done those three things all with Jerry, basically. So I had made a relationship with Jerry, and that's you know that's that's how you do or did stuff. But it still is you know try to get a relationship with somebody that's working and that's talented. For sure. Well, and how did you make sense of the fact that the music that you're creating was not necessarily just limited to a screen experience that folks would, you know, go to one time or multiple times in theaters, but rather in a theme park setting where, you know, those projects would be would would be playing for many years on end. Yeah, I wish I had a better answer, but we basically approached it as a as a a, a film. It did need to loop, so there were some. There were some considerations tonally and uh, with key structures and stuff, but um, I think for that show there was just a, a kind of looped thing that you played when you were going in, and then in the ride it was it was it was all scored. I mean, it, it was a linear experience. It wasn't a it wasn't like a game or something where you you know you could move into other areas, so everything had to like relate to everything else. We we really you know, it was really early on. We we just approached it like a movie. Like all the animated stuff I did, I just approached as a feature film. I, uh, it, there, there's no difference except that it handled m- music better. Animation tends to be much more detailed and a little bit faster, but there's still these big ideas, these stories, you know, the, 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 these ideas. And so uh, I always approached it. it, it the, the directors always asked for that. They, they always asked for it to be approached like a, a feature film, you know. Yeah, well, and, and I I thought it was a great piece of work, the the score for Cranium Command, and oh, you're no. I've um, never had anybody to even mention that to me. It was it was a wonderfully funny and reflective attraction, and the score I think really captured the 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 joy and effervescence of being a a, teen, a young teen where so much is changing. No. Um, but your work for Disney, uh, I, I'm talking to you like you don't know this, but of course you know your work for Disney has encompassed a number of years and. One of your projects was 102 Dalmatians, the sequel to the 96 live action film. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering how you approach that project from the standpoint that, of, I'm that sorry. That's one of my favorite scores I've ever written. Uh, I'm sorry the movie didn't do better. Uh, my brother and I, Tom, 
my, you mentioned Thomas, we loved the animated 101 Dalmatians. We loved the Cruella de Vil character. We loved the Cruella de Vil song. So I used it all through the, I used it all through the score. I also used a lot of other classical music in the score. Some of it overt and some of it not. I used a lot of Prokofiev from Romeo and Juliet. Uh, there is a, a, a Trout Quintet Schubert uh, piece that is diegetic, but then becomes score. Um, I, I just I had so much fun on that movie. I, I that was a uh, that was one of my favorite uh, times ever. I remember writing the 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 whole midnight bark thing, the telegraph thing, which of course was just a repeat of what the first movie was. But I remember coming home and writing that after recording all day, and just being completely enervated by it. I, I, it's it, it's one of my favorite cues I've ever written, though I don't think anybody else gets it. Like I, it's very related. It's very Debussy. It's very th this piece. Uh, he did these three tone poem pieces, and there's one called Fet Festival, and it's based on that. M m most everything in that is action oriented and uh, fast in 102 Dalmatians is referenced. There's some kind of um, reference to um, classical music. In the first cue, there's a reference to the Bartok Third Piano Concerto that no one would ever get. I mean, I, literally, it, it was like, again, it was it was like a live action animated movie. And I just, I loved the character of the, the Glenn Close character and those friggin' dogs. And, you know, it just is so lovely. I love dogs. My wife loves dogs. We had lots of dogs. It, it just is, it, it was, it was just, it was a fantastic experience. No one's ever asked me about that movie either, by the way, in my whole life. Well, I think what's unfortunate with that soundtrack is it never really got uh, a major release and, I, and yep. it, it never made it big. But one of the sequences that I really enjoy in terms of both visually and the score is, I think it's the second scene in the film, the tug of war sequence yep. between human That's and dog. yeah. That, and oh, please go ahead. No, no, no. I mean that. It's it's a set piece. It's like it's it's not a very QE piece. It's a it's it's more of a kind of a ABA section uh, uh, piece. Yeah, uh, uh, that isn't that that is not a reference to classical music. That's sort of the the heroic uh, what do you say dog theme, you know, or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I, I'd love for that to have. A re I'm sure that'll get a released at some point. I, I just nobody nobody saw the movie. I it just I as I remember, it was any abysmal flop. Um, so yeah, and, and surprising given the success of the the preceding film. But you, you mentioned, and this actually is a perfect segue into my next question. You talked about loving dogs and being very animal focused. And certainly, so many of your projects have involved animals as central creature as central figures. I guess I'm wondering from your standpoint as a composer and accounting for the genre and the tone of the film, what opportunities do animals as central characters afford you in telling a story through music? Um, I, 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 they're uncomplicated and unnuanced. They're good. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, and, and it, it just, it makes it even more surreal. Um, the, the more realistic a film is, the less, the more careful you have to be with the music in, in making statements or what my father and all those guys in the 30s would have called commenting. They would have called like what John Williams say does in West Side, in um, uh, War, uh, Star Wars, you know, all those themes for all those things. They would have, they wouldn't have called, they, they would have called it a theme, but they would, under the umbrella of, of music that comments, so they call it commentative music especially when they were struggling in the early 30s with what to do, you know. So meaning that you're 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 commenting on what's on the screen, what they're saying, but also what they're not saying, the subtext. You might be commenting on the lighting or the cost, you know, the the complete diaspora of what film is, of this pluralistic, you know, thing of all these people working. 
There's all kinds of things you can focus on with music and unify it. You know, these things tend not, these things tend not to unify themselves. That's why there is music at all in movies, in my opinion, because it, it helps to glue everything together, to, to unify it. Um, and sometimes it does it in a way that's unique to itself. So when you have, like that's animation is, you know, by its definition, not realistic. So the less realistic it is, that's why I loved like a lot of DeVito's movies, is a lot of the shots are very weird. You know, they're very from the low to high and, and very idiosyncratic to his, his view of, of, of movies. And it just means you can just do, you can do more. It's, it's more operatic in a way. So adding animals or any weird thing that's n not totally reality, even though they're making it into something that's reality is good for music, you know? And listen, the, the, the better the movie is for music or if it's horrible, the movie. If it's so horrible that only you can just do anything with the music, it's not gonna ruin it. Th those are two good uh, places where you can really do something with music. As a consumer too, I feel like there are many instances where the film may be rather mediocre, but I can appreciate the score independently, which is, I think, a testament to the composer. Yeah, I mean, that's not the focus, obviously. The focus is to make the movie better. But um, like everything, you know, it's a, it, it to some degree is a crapshoot. You know, you just, you just don't know when you're doing something if it's going to be good. You know, um, sometimes, you know, you, you think something's going to be great and it's horrible. Sometimes you think it's horrible and it turns out great. So. And, and you, you mentioned with 102 Dalmatians that you approached it where you have a lot of references to classical music. What inspired your choice or directions um, for that particular project? I, I honestly don't know. Um, there just were these long, elaborate scenes of bizarreness, you know, because of Cruella's character, as opposed to the two main characters who were very... Uh, milk toast in a way they're they're, they're not yeah. like you know and then you've got the 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 um the gerard de Perdue. what the hell was his name uh the character whatever his name was um uh, cult or something i no, think wait, yeah. no i'm gonna look it up because it's now that's bothering me <laughs> uh that's 2000 right yeah yeah 2000 okay lapelt was his name ha ha ha, ha. right uh uh I think it's, yeah, lapelt, you know, the coat, I mean, Dickens, right? So, um, you know, and that's another thing. It's like, it's, it's, it's a fairy tale, obviously, and then the dogs can, you know, so I, I don't know, it's, it's, it, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but um, uh, what we should say it again, because I, I, I lost Yeah, it. no, it's quite all right. Uh, what inspired your, your desire to incorporate oh, to, classical, to classical music, music reference? It just seemed, it, it seemed kind of, a, a fake English ele elegant society versus these dogs and the, you know, and this crazy French character. It, I don't know. It seemed continental to me in a way. And uh, I just, I just started doing it and it seemed to work for me. Again, nobody even knew what I was doing, uh, honestly, except for the, the Schubert trout, which w w during the, 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 the dog dinner that she throws, um, there's a, there's a, you know, quartet, well, it's actually a string quartet, but okay. So that's, you know, but then I used it in a, in a, I used it in a, a kind of diegetic score way, but all the other stuff, you know, in the first cue, there's a, as I said, there's a phrase from the Bartok third piano concerto that no, no, for no reason, really. It just, it just is, um, I think indicates the sort of insanity of the, of the whole, of the whole, uh, aspiration of the movie i guess i don't i don't really know a lot of times in film um you just try stuff to see if it works you know say like like when i was doing um serenity the the uh serenity was universal but it's not disney but um i had to write that the main title which was only 60 seconds 15 times that i wrote one theme which he loved and then I started trying to write the main title and he hated everything till I came up, you know, had I not written something that he liked initially, he would have just fired me because I couldn't, you know, so I just kept trying stuff 
you know, it didn't matter what I intellectually thought, what I talked to him about it. it I would do it and then it, he wouldn't like it and we'd have to do something else. So a lot of times it's, it's a, it's an instinctual thing. And then you go back and think, well, why would that work? You know, like, I don't, I don't know why referencing classical music would work in this, except it's such a sort of classic score in, in a way. It's very classically orchestrated. It's structured. There's lots of endings, which generally in film cues there aren't. You know, there's like dun dun. You know, applaud. You know, like the like the joke in Amadeus when Salieri tells you know Mozart that he doesn't even let let the Viennese know when it's over so they know what to clap. You know, and you know Mozart says, "Oh, I should take lessons from you." You know, you hack basically. You know, I mean, it. Some, something like that, you know, a lot of set pieces in it, you know. I appreciate that context. It, knowing that you've run so many scores for comedy films, do you approach those projects differently? Does that afford you more creative freedom or not um, really? I just got into it with, because I did Throw Mama from the Train really early on and it was really difficult to do. And I solved the problem and I did not solve it immediately. I had to redo it to figure out I, I, you know, Throw Mama from the Train was 87, I think. So that's like two years after I started. Okay, my first real job was Frank and Weenie, which was 84. And then I did Critters in 86. And then some other movies. And then I did Toaster in 87. It was 87. It was the same year as Brave Little Toaster. And so I, it, it, it's, a, it's a parody of Strangers on a Train, the Hitchcock film, the 30s Hitchcock film. So I said, well, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna mimic Bernard Herman, right? Why why not do that? But is Bernard Herman funny? No. Does Bernard Herman allow you to laugh? Mm, I don't know. So I wrote a main title that was very Bernard Herman-ish, with my own sort of take on it. Well. The main character, Larry, the the um, uh, Billy Crystal character, ba basically has writer's block for the whole main title. It's, you know, when he gets loonier and loonier and any, you know, does anything to, to to not write. So I wrote a main title, and Devito didn't like it. And I, I'm like, what is that? It's my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, like my eighth movie, right? I've never had this happen before. Like, what do I f do? Excuse my language. So. I started thinking about this. Well, it needs to be dark, but it needs to allow the audience to laugh, but it can't, it shouldn't clue them, you know, cue them like music, laugh, music, don't laugh, music, laugh. It, it can't do that. It has to allow, it has to, I have to make it seem real and allow the audience to laugh without, you know, saying, please laugh, you know, or whatever, whatever metaphor you want to do. So I wrote a new main title that used a lot of toy percussion instruments, but in a dramatic way. I tried to use it in a dramatic way. I, I started thinking about Stravinsky. Stravinsky is very uh, lean and rhythmic and acerbic and quirky and so those words started being mantras for me. And it was like being on a fence. You know, you can lean this way or lean that way, lean dark, lean not so dark, just don't fall off the fence. And I kind of figured it out through that movie. And then I got called to do a lot of stuff like that, you know, especially in those years, in the earlier years. You know, next movie for Dan was War of the Roses, which was like that on, on steroids. Um, that's about as dark, you know, a, a movie about divorce to the death, you know, almost Shakespearean, but it's still funny. It's, it, it, they're crazy. You have to be able to laugh at them, you know, as they divvy up the house, you know, once I have one square foot more than you and, you know, a parody of divorce. Um, so, um, and you 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 know you get typecast and and the movies that I did that were straight dramas or you know horror films or whatever they just didn't they didn't make any money that uh, Throw Mama was a huge hit I did Heather's that was a huge hit it wasn't a huge hit but a big critical hit then I did um 
uh, I don't know what else. You know, War of the Roses was a big hit too. It's anyway, blah blah blah. So that that's my story of that. Yeah, well, I you know I recognize that your catalog of, of films is is very vast, and one of your more recent projects, being West Side Story, yeah. was very compelling. I, I absolutely loved it. And I know you've engaged in a number of interviews this past year about your role in the project. And I, and I guess I'm curious in, in terms of, you've noted in other contexts about being very intentional in adapting the score and really maintaining and honoring the spirit of Leonard Bernstein. And I guess I'm wondering how you, what, what strategies you engaged in for yourself to figure out where to make little tweaks, what you felt like would still be honoring that that yeah. original source material because that's a very uh distinct opportunity and and a responsibility i imagine too yeah i talked about i've talked about this like uh, almost ad nauseum um i i didn't i didn't uh i we we you just can't do anything i mean i i got this project because john williams told steven spielberg to hire me this is what would have happened in the 50s my father alfred newman would have said uh he, you know, some some producer or director would call him and say, "Who should I hire for this movie?" And he'd say, "Oh, Jerry Goldsmith or John Williams." This was this was the way people were hired. You know, it, it's a throwback to that. He he just he just he said, "Hire David Newman," and Spielberg hired David Newman. There's no discussion about it really uh, that I know of. You know, because I know West Side Story. I had conducted the '61 movies like '61 movie live. With orchestra like 50 times i had i've music directed i've played in it i've been in it i i i know where everything is for west side story and the idea was not to do anything except what absolutely had to be done you know the farthest we want to feel was i did an arrangement for um somewhere but it had precedence because it was the least canonic part of the show of the broadway show it wasn't even sung by a character and then in the 61 movie, it was very truncated and sung by uh, Natalie, well, Marnie Nixon and, um, and Richard Beamer, the guy who dubbed him. Um, it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't the same as the show. So we thought, okay, it's a different character. She can sing it. Spielberg wanted to do that. Other than that, it was like, you know, we need eight bars here. We need, you know, and we need some underscore here. So I just go, I go to the incidental music in the Broadway show or some in the movie or some in the uh, symphonic dances or, you know, wherever and just grab what we needed and try to make it so that it, it all felt like, Bern, I mean, it all was Bernstein. There's nothing in there that's not, that's not, that's not Bernstein. So also it was really a Disney movie, you know, it was a Fox movie. Right, Disney right. Bought, Disney just bought it. Right. Well, and that's anything to do with, as far as I know, with making it. So yes, and and that actually leads me to to wonder in terms of because that's under the 20th Century Studios umbrella. So many of your projects over the years have come from yeah. Fox now, 20th Century Studios. What is that? How do you process that? Given that your your father was responsible for that fanfare. I just think it's a shame. You know, I I I, I think that we don't have there there are not enough. This can, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that we should get into this, my my take on what's going on now. But I, uh, obviously, these companies need to be gigantic to compete with Amazon and, and uh, uh, you know, and Apple who have unlimited money and really don't care if a movie, you know, there is no, uh, movies don't make money in Amazon universe or Netflix universe. It's, it's all bullshit. You know, they, there's no way to, there's no way to know what, how well something does or what it does to their bottom line because people are subscribing to the whole thing not just one movie you know so um i'm did, did, go ahead let, let me clarify my question i'm not sure if it, it came across uh, as clearly as i meant it to be i guess my question was along the lines of that the the, the fox fanfare the, yeah. the music that opens the fox films that you've You've written a number of films for Fox. I my question was along the lines of what it's like for you to have a connective thread, given that you're scoring the film, but it's but your films, many of those films are opened by that piece of music. Oh well, I mean, you know, it's iconic that piece of music. I I uh, you know, I just it wasn't on any of the new Star Wars movies, and it was on the original three Star Wars movies. I I'm 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 bemoaning the fact that I don't think it's going to be used anymore. 
quite frankly. I mean, it was in the beginning of West Side Story, definitely. Um, but I don't see Disney wanting to use the fanfare for Fox for their... So, I don't know. And anyway, when, when are we going to hear it on a movie again if there's no Fox anymore, right? Yeah, that's a great piece of music. So I was just interested yeah. in terms of the symbolism for you, given well, that mean, there's I, that connective it's tissue. Like, it's not just me. I mean, it's 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 probably the best known logo for everyone. It, it's heralding the the movies. It's and 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 I think it's I think it's a shame that it's not going to be around anymore, except in the past. That's how I feel about it. I I I I, I think everyone feels that or most people would feel that that logo is, is the, the Uber logo of Hollywood, the calling to arms of, of our, this industry and what it did and um, what it does nationally and internationally um, in terms of culture for the, 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 the world, the good that can do and the bad, it, the whole thing. So it was an extraordinary thing that he, that, that just worked and then the, the extension that he wrote in 54 the Cinemascope Ascension is he makes it even better. I mean, quite frankly, it's you know it's it's almost weird hearing it in the thirty the thirties and forties without yeah. the extension now. So you know, for sure. No, I, I was I just curious because of of the symbolism that that has in, in no. the industry. And I guess to wrap up before some very quick Disney related questions, one of your newer projects, Greenix and Ham. Uh, could you talk about that or any other projects on the docket for you? Yeah, I loved I loved Green Eggs and Ham. It's, it's for Net, Netflix. I don't know. It gets. I don't know how it did. I don't know anything about it. I I just I worked for three years on it, uh, on and off. Um, it you know it was uh, animated. It was all scored. You know, twenty minutes. I think there were a total of twenty three episodes. So it was a, it was a lot a lot of music. So, um, and yeah, on I, on deck. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing. I, I have a lot of conducting coming up. Um, um, I don't have anything really, you know, special on the docket. So we'll just see what what happens. So. Well, I appreciate you sharing okay, a, a few a few music questions for you sure. as we wrap up. So I ask these of all of my guests. Sure. Um, these are just opinions. There are no right answers. But uh, the first one is: What Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? I probably I probably listened to Mary Poppins the most. Um, though as I got older, I loved this the um, these Haley Mills, um, uh, especially the the movie the the Truth About Spring. I don't know if you know that movie. It's a it's a Haley Mills, and I forget who the composer is, but it. It just was so funny and perfect um, as, a, as a comedy score, which of course nobody, that's 65. So nobody nobody takes any of that stuff seriously. It's Robert Farnon, whoever that is. He must've been a Disney, you know, they had a lot of staff, staff composers, um, but um, Oh, it looks yeah, like this the is the other universe. one that she did. Uh, the, the the sad one, um, uh, uh, you know, where she becomes cripple. Um, I loved that score too. Uh, God, what is that? Um, uh, Haley Mills. I'll have to look her up. Hang on. Um, yeah, her catalog, her Disney catalog was really expensive. It seems I, I like I just thought she was. I love the Parent Trap too. I like that song. Yeah, the truth about the, the, the trouble with angels. I love, but that's not Disney. Um, Pollyanna, Pollyanna, that movie. That's a 1960. That's Disney. Yeah. yeah, and that was her breakout role for the studio. Right, right. right around. And that's that's uh, another guy, Paul Smith. I don't even know who that is. Um, but um, uh, I love. I remember loving the music for that too. But I think that Mary Poppins. I loved the the just the the the. The sadness and joy of the of of of, of that music, and um, I I have actually had to rewatch that film a number of times because in New York our next door neighbor's child, um, who's a couple of years old, is just obsessed with that movie. So we've watched that movie with her several times, <laughs> and she calls it Poppy. So. Um, I've watched it recently a lot. I was going to conduct it with the New York Philharmonic before COVID hit. Um, I would love to do that as a live movie, but um, 
that that hasn't been rescheduled because everything went to you know crap during yeah oh, and i i love the notion of those concerts um what disney song most recently got stuck in your head i'm not much for the songs um okay. uh it, it's more the background music for me i mean i do love i do love some of the songs from um you know mary poppins i love i love let's go fly kite i think that's a i think it's a brilliant ending the the uh but yeah you know it's not for me like um you know, I, I know a lot, like, I love Sondheim songs. I could name you most of those and stuff. But Disney wasn't, um, I, I wasn't, like, a huge young person Disney fan, per se. I loved going to Disneyland. I love Pirates of the Caribbean and, and Small World and all that stuff. But um, not not the movies. Mainly, I would be attracted to the, the underscore music. Well, I, I, think... loved, I mean, I loved Cruella de Vil. I love that song, you know. That that it, that's why I, I put it all in. Um, I put that song all over 102 Dalmatians. So. Yeah, you were you were not subtle about yes, that. But I, I was think not it. I think. About it. But I think it works well. Um, what this actually is a perfect segue to the, the last of the music sure. questions. What does Disney film do you ha feel has the most underrated music or score? I don't. I don't. I don't know. Um, I really don't know what's underrated or rated well for disney um again disney's never been a brand for me except peripherally um so i, I don't have really brad i'm sorry i don't really have a good answer to that i don't i don't know which what which one do you think is the most underrated oh, i think there's a lot of great uh scores one of them is um alan Menken's score for uh, the hunchback of notre dame mm -hmm. um, that has a really lovely score that didn't get the same level of hype as some of his uh, other films around right, that era right um, yeah that's a nice that's a nice score yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't i don't i don't know you know we did watch we did when my kids were young we watched a lot of not little mermaid because they were too young then um of uh, beauty and the beast that alan menken uh, and and howard ashman who i think was a friggin genius oh howard ashman was a genius oh yes i agree I, with that. I, I haven't watched that have you watched the um the doc about it is it good it's fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah Don Hahn directed yeah, it and he, did a great job. Yeah, yeah, he that relationship with him and Alan was they were really good for each other. You know, I, I, I um, uh, didn't they they did Little Shop of Horrors too, didn't they? Is that mm -hmm. yeah? Yep, that was their first I, collaboration. Little Shop of Horrors, I really liked too. I, I really love. I'm a big musical theater. Both my brother and I were from way back. From that was a big part of 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 our Palisades education was. The summer, the 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 um, spring and summer uh, big musicals that had you know three hundred kids involved in it, and you know, um, so we always loved uh, uh, musicals, and we'd go. The there used to be a lot of it in in Los Angeles downtown. They and in the summer, they a lot of the Broadway hit shows would come, and we'd get my mom to you know drop us there. You know, everything in LA is an hour. Have you ever been to LA? Yes, yeah, everything's uh -huh. an hour friggin' drive. So, uh, oh yes, yeah. So anyway, well, and you mentioned Sondheim, and uh, I know it's not uh, Disney, but Company is my favorite Sondheim oh my production. Well, uh, uh, Company Into the Woods, uh, you know Sweeney Todd. I, I mean, they're 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 freaking they're they're like philosophical treatises. Into the Woods, that song that the father sings to his son. It, it, where we die but we don't die we we you know we all this like this philosophical stuff that he gets in that just it's just slays you you know he he makes a statement and then he answers the statement with something that you just would never think of or like in into the woods when cinderella um she she did you know should she marry the prince should she run away? Should she marry? Should she run away? And then I decide to not decide. I'm not going to do anything. I'll leave a clue, you know, a shoe, a you know, you know, double rhymes, triple rhymes, you know, just Sondheim is one of a kind. Like, like I would say West Side Story is, you know, a one of a kind, one of a kind, uh, once in a century kind of work of art, I think. So. Yeah, I, I appreciated that. And the, and then my last question is a sure. random one before I ask how folks can follow your work. Uh, so I don't mean to put you on the spot for this, but so we've talked about 
um, your relatives, Randy and Thomas Newman, each of whom have been responsible for a number of different Pixar films. Do you have a favorite score of each of theirs for Pixar, or at the very least, do you have fav a favorite Pixar film that they've been involved in? I like I liked Wally a lot. I thought that was a lovely score, and a, I, I really liked the the movie. And I liked Toy, Toy Story. Toy Story honestly reminded me a lot of Brave Little Toaster. I mean, it, it, it's. I <laughs> anyway, let's not get into that. But um, uh, Randy, and also Randy, Randy's early. Randy is a songwriter. Randy Newman is is almost to me on the level of Sondheim. I. I that song, the God song, uh, the 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 um, he he wrote a song called "Emotional Girl." I don't know how familiar you are with Randy's work. I am um, not necessarily that piece they're, though. They're they're all third person story songs. They're 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 almost never first person. They're always stories about somebody else. So he writes this song about and, and remember, Randy. We all grew up in the Palisades in the '60s basically coming of age, uh, different generations, but through the 60s, through the, the Vietnam War, you know, all that stuff, you know, and it, very liberal, a uh, lot of beach girls, a lot of pretty girls, a lot of all kinds of stuff, right? And he writes this song called Real Emotional Girl. And he writes about this girl that is really careful because she's very emotional. And she allows herself to fall in love with a with with this character, and then the character breaks her heart, and then she's very, very, very careful, and she's a real emotional girl, and it just perfectly encapsulates a certain segment of society growing up for us as kids. It's like it's like a perfect encapsulation of the kind of warm, sunny, empty, devoid of meaning, beautiful, seductive ambience that was that west side of Los Angeles, you know, made up, young, very little hierarchy, a lot, uh, just all that stuff, not to, you know, not to be hyperbolic about it, but Randy's songs just like perfectly tell the story of this part of the country and I, I i really and and there that that song in the toy story three what's the one um uh we, we belong together no, no no but the 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 uh the other one um from toy story three? The, the one that she did the toy doesn't have a oh when she loved me yes that's a quintessential randy newman song oh my gosh that, it's that, brilliant. That, okay so that's a song that's similar to these these songs you know it's it's like it's just so heartfelt. And then there's a lyric that you kind of go, what? What did he say? You know, and it kind of like just tugs at your at your at your heart, you know. So I'm a huge fan of Randy and Tom and my father, who in retrospect, it posthumously, let's say, every day that I learn anything about him, I'm more and more impressed with what he was able to accomplish. You know, and and basically it killed him. You know, he he was not even seventy when he died. Um, he had a huge family that he had to take care of. He smoked like you know a chimney, he drank. But what he was able to accomplish, and John and Jerry, the, Bernard Herman, the people he was responsible for helping along the way, it's just a who's who of the the middle to late twentieth century in film music. It just is. Alex North. You know, then Lionel with John and, you know, the whole thing. It was all, it was, if, if you really trace it, you can trace it to the Fox Music Department, 1939 to 1959. Just absolutely a golden age, not necessarily for the music, because the music's pretty homogeneous, though it's fantastic. I'm not denigrating it. It's just, it's the it's the structure of, 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 of what excellence was in film music and how to, how to spot talent how to nurture talent, how to be clear about what is expected and to be fair in your management style and to pay what 
deserves to be paid. And, you know, it's, 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 just, it's an incredible story. I hope someday somebody will write a, a, a biography of, of either that era of Fox or about my father or something. So anyway. That's, yeah, I would, I would welcome that perspective yeah. too. That's why I enjoyed the score documentary that I know yeah. you're engaged with because I think it gave viewers a, a better glimpse into it, even if it was more holistic. Yeah. So. yeah. Great. David, last, how sure. can listeners follow your work? Uh, I'm on, I'm on Facebook a bit. I'm on Twitter a bit, uh, but uh, I'm not, I'm not a big, I'm, I'm a, I'm a little, you know, I'm a boomer. So I'm not like constantly uh, tweeting or Facebooking. Um, you know, um, I do have a website, but it's hopelessly out of, out of date. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. You, you, I, I do a lot of conducting, so um, that you can find. Generally, I'll post that on Facebook. But um, anyway, uh, oh. I'm still here around, just not not the hugest social presence in the world. So That's quite, quite all right. Not everybody has to be. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Thank Brad. you for offering this perspective. It, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Really good questions. I appreciate talking about this stuff. And my thanks go out again to David Newman for joining me on this episode of Notably Disney. Hope you gathered some new insights and appreciation for his work, which really, as you heard, spans many decades and has been quite impactful for the Walt Disney Company across the theme parks, film, and more. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H M-A-N reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.